You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Todd. My name's Fritz Hager, as Todd said. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I have the privilege to open up God's Word for us today, and uh, my prayer is that, as Todd said, that we would find comfort through the teaching of God's Word. The morning of February 24th, 1991 was the most alive that I've ever felt. Every sense was on full alert. I could feel each grain of sand that stung my face. The burning oil wells had taken the chill out of the February morning air. I could hear every sound inside my tank, even over the whine of a 1,500 horsepower jet turbine engine, especially the sound of my beating, pounding heart. I'd been training for 18 months for this very moment, and it was about to be game time, except to call it game time would minimize the stakes. They were much higher than anything I'd ever faced before. So the moment came and I keyed the transmitter on my helmet, waited for the familiar click and then the beep that let me know that the digital encoding system was working. And I said, Red, this is Red 1. Move out. And the turbines whined and the track groaned as my tank and three others lurched forward. Acknowledging my orders. And we moved into enemy territory. And for the first time in our lives, we're going to face an enemy that could actually shoot back at us. And lives hung in the balance, both my troops and the men that we would face. It was a 23-year-old tank platoon leader heading into Kuwait during Operation Desert Storm. And as the adrenaline started to flow, we crossed the border and everything began to slow down. I like when you're in a car accident or in some sort of life-threatening situation. Everything got slow. My eyes strained to pick out targets on the horizon and the gunner scanned back and forth, left and right, looking for the enemy, which we knew was out there. And then... Nothing happened. Seconds went by. Minutes turned into hours. And we drove all day, starting and stopping, starting, stopping, and waiting. Until it got boring. Combat's been described as weeks of boredom punctuated by moments of absolute terror. And it didn't take long for me to learn that lesson. Later that day, we're passing through an Iraqi mine and fire pit obstacle when my roommate's tank that was traveling in a lane next to me hit a mine. And as the smoke billowed from the side of his tank and it lurched forward awkwardly, rolled to one side and gradually stopped. And I waited for the report to see if Mike was okay. 
And ultimately, he learned that he was. And here's what one day of combat experience taught me. When you're in enemy territory, you have to be ready to fight at any moment. You have to stay alert, ready, poised. Not asleep at the wheel, not bored, not just going through the motions. It wasn't that Mike's tank hitting a mine changed our reality. The reality was we were in enemy territory. We'd been there for hours. And even though we couldn't see him, our enemy was still there. Most of you, thankfully, aren't combat vets, but you face, we face, a similar challenge today, whether we know it or not. And that is staying alert in enemy territory and not being lulled or dulled into boredom, into forgetting or never even recognizing that we actually are in enemy territory. It was hard not to feel that this week as after seeing images of black men being gunned down by police or the echoes of the shots of a sniper raining down in Dallas. Or maybe it was the sudden death of a loved one or a devastating diagnosis that quickly and vividly remind us that this is a hostile, broken world where hate and evil and pain and loss are all too common and that we're in enemy territory indeed. So if walking through life with dulled, bored senses isn't the answer, then what is? And here's the truth for us today in today's text. And that is, even though we are fighting in a war that has already been won, the battles are still bitter. And we need to keep our eyes on the king. Keep our eyes on the king. That's what we learn from the text of Psalm 110 today. So turn with me there to Psalm 110. It's right in the middle of your Bible or maybe it's several clicks away depending on how you're going to get there. But while you're turning there, let me orient you to how we'll spend the next few minutes together. First, we're going to look at Psalm 110 through three different perspectives or filters, if you will. We'll look at what the psalm meant to the original audience back when it was first written. And then we'll look at what the text tells us that is always true about God and man. And then finally, what are the implications for that truth for us today now? So call that then, always, and now. And we'll break from our norm and then we'll close the service today in a time of corporate guided prayer as we reflect on the events of last week. So let's get started. Psalm 110, the superscription of the psalm identifies it as a psalm of David. And often it's classified as a, a royal psalm, a psalm about the Davidic king in Jerusalem, a psalm used to commemorate the coronation of the king or maybe a great victory. But the challenge with that here is that these facts aren't consistent with any of the facts we know about the kings of Israel. And it seems like during the intertestamental period that the belief that this was the pro a prophet speaking to David about his special relationship with God. And that had become the dominant view of the day. It was a psalm about David 
rather than an event witnessed by David. And as an aside, another one of the challenges in this passage is the Hebrew here is, is very difficult. If you were to hold up three or four translations and look at some of these verses, you'd struggle to see that they were even the same passage. And several times this week I thought, why on earth did you choose Psalm 110? But fortunately, in our church, we have at least two Hebrew geeks. Paul Tanner, who was here first hour, and then Ross, who is not here right now. But if you want to argue about the Hebrew behind these translations, please go find them. Um, I'm not up to it. But let's get started. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord. There are two words in Hebrew that are translated as Lord in English. The first, which is the first in this sentence, is the personal name for God, Yahweh. And because of the reverence that the Hebrews held for God, they would not even speak that word out loud. If they were reading this passage, they would substitute the word Adonai for that, which means Lord or Master. But when you read this verse, the Lord says to my Lord, the first Lord is Yahweh and the second Lord is Adonai. So, Yahweh said to my Adonai, my Lord or Master. It's actually stronger even than just said. It's actually an oracle or a decree. The original audience would have understood this as God speaking to David, seating him at the place of power and authority at his right hand. The seating is a statement of his completion and his exaltation. And then this prophet as they originally thought it meant, says to my Lord in verse 2 and 3, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So this is a statement that the Lord is the power and authority behind the king. And he's going to rule Israel, even while surrounded by all the neighboring enemy powers. And while we might take it for granted today that people follow the king, you can look through the history of Israel and see that whenever a new king comes along, it's always a time of crisis and rebellion. But not for this king. This king's people won't rebel. They will offer themselves Freely, Literally, the Hebrew says it's a free will offering, which is not an offering obligated under the Mosaic law, but one that they would give freely out of the abundance of their heart. And these followers are wearing holy garments, not dressed for battle, but that's exactly where they're headed. Into battle on the day of power or the day of the Lord, which is that great day of judgment when the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God will be fully defeated. And then the last part of verse 3, which is awkward in English and even more awkward in Hebrew, is figurative language to show that the number of the followers of the king will cover the ground like the morning dew. 
Then the prophet declares in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Yahweh, God, has made an oath or a covenant that will be eternal. His favor will not be withdrawn from this king as it was from Saul or other kings or even certain lines of the priesthood. The original audience would have been a little confused by this statement because the office of king and the office of priest were always separate. Kings were from the line of Judah, priests from the line of Aaron. This didn't mean that the king didn't have a spiritual role. He represented his people to God. He led them, ideally, to faith and to obedience. But we know they failed miserably at that. And the actual office of priest, one of the main tasks, performing sacrifices, that was definitely not the part of the job of a king. As Saul found out in 1 Samuel 13 when he offered sacrifices personally. But he's not just any priest. He's a priest from the order of Melchizedek who shows up in the Bible in just three places. Right here, the book of Hebrews, and when we first meet him back in Genesis 14. When Abram, after rescuing Lot, meets this Canaanite king in the city of Salem, Melchizedek. And he blesses Abram. And the text says that Melchizedek is a priest of the God Most High. And then Abram pays a tithe to him, indicating his subordination to Melchizedek which would have been mind-blowing to the Israelites because of their reverence for the patriarch of the patriarchs, Abraham. So before there was Mosaic law, before there was a little Levitical priesthood, there was a Canaanite king who was God's priest. And as king of Salem, he sat on a throne in the city that the Israelites would one day call Jerusalem. So from this, we can see four reasons why my Lord, this messianic king, is superior to David. First, David calls him my Lord. Second, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Third, he was the first godly king of Jerusalem, if you will. And fourth, he was both a priest and a king. In fact, while David was a man after God's own heart, Melchizedek's name means the king of righteousness. Then the last stanza describes the power behind this king and the completeness of his victory. Let's read verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I'm not going to go into great detail here, but there are a few important observations I want to make. The first, Yahweh is now on the king's right side. They've switched places. The victory that this king will win is actually won by Yahweh. The second, 
While he originally, back in verse 2, was ruling amongst his enemies, now his victory is complete. He will shatter the kings, bodies will fill the valleys or nations, and not just his neighbors, but over all of the earth, which even David was never promised. And this last verse, verse 7, which is awkward, basically means that he'll have the power to finish the job. While he's pursuing his enemies, he's refreshed so that he can finish the job to its conclusion. Total and complete victory. Now that's how the original audience would have viewed this psalm. It was confirmation of the special relationship that David had with God and his protection of Israel from their enemies. Which of course was true, but as Paul Harvey said, here's the rest of the story. Here's what the psalm says that is always true about God and us. First, let's look at how David fits into the psalm. Not only is he the author, but the New Testament tells us that he is the prophet describing the heavenly scene of someone greater than him being seated at the right hand of the Father. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, about this very scene. Being therefore a prophet, he's talking about David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would seat one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter does a couple of things here. He tells us that David was writing about someone else who is my Lord, and that someone else is Jesus of Nazareth, a descendant of David. And he also tells us that this scene described in verse 1 was not a figurative scene, that it was an actual event that was going to take place after the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus into heaven. It was a prophetic description of an actual event. And this, my Lord, is seated because his work, his obedience to the Father, was perfect and his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And as you read this text and you think of Jesus as a physical man... You reread verse 7 and you see that Jesus, as a man, still gets thirsty. And he stops to drink and is refreshed. Psalm also tells us something about the current reign of King Jesus. He's ruling amongst his enemies. The enemy, Satan, who opposes God, is defeated in that the work of Jesus on the cross was decisive. As we sang before, victory is certain. 
And while that is certainly true today, I think this psalm also points to the second coming of Jesus and the final judgment of the nations. So it's as if the war is won even while the battles rage on. Some translations have verse 6 translated as the valleys are filled with corpses. So listen to this description of the final battle, a prophecy against Gog, described in Ezekiel 39 verses 11 and 12. On that day I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for their Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the Valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. He's describing a valley after a battle that is so filled with corpses that it will take seven months to bury the dead. That's Jesus the King seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling amongst his enemies until the Father makes his enemies his footstool. And then we'll see complete and total victory. That's Jesus the king. Let's look at Jesus the priest. The psalm tells us something about the fruit of the priesthood of Jesus. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he was king of a city called Salem, which means peace. So Jesus is a priest... In the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. So Jesus is the ultimate source of both righteousness and peace. The second is that he's a priest forever. While his sacrifice is complete and his work finished, it's been accepted by the Father. And if you contrast that with the Levitical priests, as the writer of Hebrews does, they had to continue the sacrifices day after day after day until ultimately they were forced into retirement or they died. Jesus, His work endures forever, which means our salvation through faith in Him lasts forever and cannot be lost. Lastly, what does the psalm tell us that's always true about us? You know, I think one of the interesting things about the followers of the king in this psalm is that they head into battle dressed in holy garments. I know the first time I went into battle, I was not dressed in holy garments. I was dressed for war. I had a flame-retardant Nomex jumpsuit on, a charcoal-lined chemical protective suit. I was wearing body armor. I had a Kevlar helmet. And I sat inside of 63 tons of armor. I was dressed for war. But here, they're in holy garments. Holy means set apart or devoted or dedicated to a certain purpose. But I also believe that this actually describes who this army is. It's an army of priests. Which probably normally doesn't strike fear into the hearts of the enemy to know that an army of priests is coming after them. But it should here. So why do I think they're priests? One way to determine that is to look at the word for holy here. It's kadosh. 
If you go all the way back to Exodus 19, the nation of Israel was called to be a holy, a kadosh nation, a kingdom of priests. The same word is used to describe all throughout the New Test Old Testament that the garments of the priests and the items that they used for work in the temple were all holy. But the second way we know that this army is priests is that their king is a priest. Which makes his subjects priests. So how do you get one of these holy garments? How do you get this battle uniform? You know, there's another place in scripture where there's an army of priests. An army of soldiers in holy garments. It's in Revelation. It's just before the Lord's victory over Satan. Revelation 19 verses 14 through 16 that says... And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These priestly warriors following their king priest Jesus are wearing the same thing that they wore to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Where these garments of fine linen, white and pure, are by God's grace called the righteous deeds of the saints. This doesn't mean that your deeds earn your salvation, but they are the necessary and guaranteed fruit or result the outworking of your faith, of your reliance on Jesus as the eternal Son of God who came to earth and lived a perfect life. And that perfect life led him to death on a cross where he bore the punishment for our sins, where he died and was buried, rose again, and as this psalm says, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And when you claim him as your king and as your priest, you receive his righteousness, his holy garments, his peace. And you join, you enlist in his army of saints. Because we're in a bitter battle, even though the war is won. And we must keep our eyes on the king. So that's then and always what's true about God and true about us. What about now? So where are we now in this psalm that starts at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven almost 2,000 years ago and ends with total victory over Satan? The answer is right there in verse 1 that says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until, until I make your enemies your footstool. That's where we are, until. Living in the until. Where it's easy to lose track of the reality that we are in enemy territory. Living under the rule of King Jesus, but in the midst of his enemies. Waiting for his return 
and final victory. So how do we live today in the until? There's really too much to say on this, but I want you to look at verse 3. It gives us an answer. Verse 3 says that the people of the king offer themselves freely. They're a free will offering, which is, I think, what Paul has in mind in Romans 12 when he tells the church of Rome, when he tells us that in light of everything that King Jesus has done for them, for us, that we should, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a free will offering. Paul then points out that this should look very different than the world in verse 2, and then verses 3 through 8, he lists all the gifts that you receive become your faith and the important roles that everyone plays in building up the body. But now I'm going to read verses 9 to 18, which I know is a long passage, but it paints a full picture of this living sacrifice that is so different from the world that we live in. As I read this, I want you to think back over the last week or the last month and think how you responded to the world around you. Think how you responded to terrorist attack in Orlando, to the ups or mostly the downs of the presidential election. The racial divide in our country is evidenced by the response to police shootings. And then finally this week, the murder of police officers in Dallas. As I read this description of how to respond differently than the world would respond, I want you to think back to your week. Close your eyes if that helps you concentrate. But I'll read beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's how we should respond to a week like this week. That's what not being conformed to the world looks like. And it's my prayer for me, it's my prayer for you and for this church that we would respond to a broken world 
in that way. There's one last aspect of living in the until that I think I have to mention, and that's that we have a king to follow. We have a king to look to, and that king is unfailing. He is exalted, and as we read, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords, and he is above this broken world, waiting until. And he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And we can look to him as the example to how to respond to a broken world. So today you have a decision to make. Serving the king, living amongst his enemies. Engaged in battle today, who are you going to look to? You're going to look to yourself, to man as your king, or Jesus as your king. And if you've decided to look to Jesus, who are you going to point others to? Because we're in a bitter battle, even though the war has already been won. And we must keep our eyes on the king. Back in 1991, before the ground war started, my platoon sergeant, Sergeant First Class Green, dropped into my foxhole and wanted to talk. He was this grizzled old sergeant compared to me, the young Green Lieutenant. And as I reflect back on Sergeant Green, I realize that Sergeant Green was probably about 38 at the time. He was ancient to me. Anyway, he drops into my foxhole with this serious look on his face and he blurts out, Sir, are we going to die? My first thought was, I don't know. And the second is, you're the old man. Why are you asking me that question? And I remembered that I was actually the leader. So I recovered and I walked him through the superiority of our training, the superiority of our tactics, the advantages we have in standoff range with our tanks, our skill and gunnery, and that if we ran into something we couldn't beat on our own, there was always air cover. Good call on overwhelming air superiority. In short, on the eve of battle, when this man was faced with his deepest fear, I pointed him to man. I pointed him to myself, to our fellow soldiers. Obviously, I was a pretty lousy priest back then, if I was even a priest at all, since this happened in a during a period of long rebellion in my life, long before I ever dreamed that the Lord would call me into ministry. But I can tell you that 25 years later, I still look back on that night with regret for not answering that question differently. And my prayer is that God, in His grace, sent a much more effective priest to represent Him to Sergeant Green. So how about you this week? 
Someone dropped into your foxhole, scared or grieved over the brokenness in our world, the undeniable presence of evil, or even the apparent victory of evil over good. Where would you point them? What kind of priest would you be? Would you point them to new laws, to a political party or a particular leader? Or if they watched you long enough, they read your Facebook posts or followed your tweets, where would they think you were looking for your peace? Or would they see any evidence of peace at all? Because the reality is we are in a bitter battle even though the war is won. And we must keep our eye on the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you do sit in heaven and you are the creator of all that is seen and unseen and you are so far superior to us. Father, we are so thankful that we can come into this throne room that this psalm has described. We do that boldly and yet humbly, not on our own merits, but because of your Son, Jesus. Because of His obedience and because of His death for us, He now sits at your right hand waiting interceding for us. He is king and he is priest. And it is him that we look to today when faced with brokenness and hurt around us. Father, I pray today, above all days, that my brothers and sisters here would hear, would have heard a better sermon than the one that was preached Father, that your spirit would work in our lives and our hearts to guide us to an understanding of your truth and that you would enable us to respond to the world in a way that's unlike anything this world would see. And in doing that, Father, that we would point them to your son, the king. It's his name we pray, in the name of Jesus the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.